Welcome to the podcast where heavy industrial industries meet the venture capital ecosystem, interviewing both thought-leading investors and pioneering founders to better understand the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead for digital industrial innovation. Your host is Ty Finley, and this is the Heavy Hitters Podcast. Trevor Zimmerman joins us today from Boulder, Colorado. Trevor is a co-founder and managing partner at Blackhorn Ventures, a venture fund investing in companies that are redefining industrial resource efficiency. Prior to launching Blackhorn Ventures, he was a managing partner at private investment firm Armour Capital Group. And before jumping into the investment ecosystem, Trevor was an operator as a senior engineer at Curion Inc. after having completed research stints with both Oak Ridge and the Naval Research National Labs. Trevor, could not be more excited to have you and, and Blackhorn on the show to chat about our shared focus around this topic of digital industrial. So thanks for joining the Heavy Hitters. Thanks, Ty. Glad to be here. I appreciate it. Great. Well, we, we love starting with backgrounds. So tell us more about the fun story of how a National Labs Research Fellow ends up launching a digital industrial venture capital fund. <laughs> so it's a good question. Um, so it's, it, you may not believe me, but like, given that it was two stents, but the national labs were like a complete accident. I really had no intention of, of, of going to a national lab. Um, really, it was in between undergrad and graduate school. Um, one of my professors gave my resume to the Naval Research Lab, and it seemed like a cool opportunity to go work on, on high-performance batteries for the military. And then Oak Ridge National Lab had a project that was sideways. In graduate school, I did uh, nuclear and environmental engineering and material science and just had the right background. And so it was an interesting project to go and turn that project around and keep, you know, uranium and technetium from the Manhattan Project from migrating offsite in groundwater. But both those stents were kind of purely by accident. I'd sort of grown up in a more engineering and entrepreneurship oriented family like starting companies was what we talked about around the dinner table um i kind of saw my dad in particular go through the messy middle starting some companies and that's what i always wanted to do so really it was a bit of a detour on the way to you know starting companies investing in companies Right on. Well, appreciate the humility, but anytime someone says nuclear engineering and Manhattan Project, I, I don't think it was any accident. Uh, we got a sharp guy here on the podcast, so appreciate you jumping on. So so let's do this. Let's set the stage for all of our listeners. Um, a few pieces here. Can you tell us about the history of when and why Blackhorn Ventures was formed, what your thematic and fund construction strategy is, and, and then maybe bring it home with how your fund likes to differentiate itself? Yeah, and there's a lot there. Um, this will be a fun conversation. So you know, really, Blackhorn is born out of a few things. Um, after Fukushima, after Curion, um, I did a couple of other, you know, roles helping investors out of bad situations, a little bit of a turnaround, things that are not on LinkedIn. Endeared myself to them. And so I started investing kind of full time, uh, helping with diligence, et cetera. So I started investing largely kind of personal capital full time. And one of the first people that I met through investing was Jack Fuchs, one of the other co-founders of Blackhorn. And Jack's been teaching kind of the flagship entrepreneurship courses in the Graduate School of Engineering at, at Berkeley and now at Stanford for decades, cherry picking the best companies out, CFO, I'm sitting on the board investing in them. And Jack and I, uh, you know, hit it off, um, complementary skill sets, shared values, et cetera. We did six or seven investments together in pretty rapid succession. And 
through that kind of picked up beyond that kind of picked up the rest of the Blackhorn team. And so we did a little over 70 direct investments as individuals, a lot of overlap between us kind of working deals up together, et cetera. Um, and so that's sort of half of the Genesis story. The other half is there were some family offices that followed us into investments. Uh, you know, we do see, they come in kind of series A, we were on boards with them and the representatives, uh, in particular kind of more industrially oriented families, family offices. And they kind of came to us and they said, you know, you all are investing in at the time, you know, even to a much greater extent than today, these, these really unsexy sectors. Um, you have truly proprietary access to these top ecosystems. Um, you've got domain expertise, right? We've all got kind of operating backgrounds. You've got domain expertise in these sectors. Could you give us access to all of that, right? And at that point, I think we'd had 13 exits and our average exit multiple was like 19x. And so there was also some early returns data that suggested that there, there was a lot of value to be captured in these sectors. And so, you know, that's really what prompted us to, to start Blackhorn, sort of the, those two um, experiences, I guess. Um, and we started with, this gets into like the fund structure question, right? Or firm structure. We started with a seed fund, right? Um, and this has been extremely valuable for us. Um, Seed fund really focused on access, optionality, a prepared mind. And, you know, I think the power law distribution and venture returns is often talked about, but we really felt like, you know, it was a real thing. We need to have the appropriately sort of the appropriate in as a function of stage, right? So, you know, the target for that fund was 50 companies. We ended up around 45 in that portfolio, um, but pretty high, high end value. Um, and it's all focused on, yeah, industrial resource efficiency, right? And we would, we would describe what we do as, as kind of non-concessionary impact investing. And what I mean by that is we are absolutely not willing to sacrifice financial returns. If anything, we think financial returns should be greater. But when you look at something like climate change, 70% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions come from the three sectors that we primarily focus on, right? So the built environment, um, transportation, logistics, and energy, right? And so we were like, if we can invest in exponentially scalable market-based solutions that improve efficiency and resiliency in those sectors, that's one of the best things we can do to have a positive impact in the world. Um, so anyway, LPs really agreed with that. Seed fund was the catalyst for that. Um, timely investment thesis, I think the right number of companies. And then we've just sort of played down the capital stack from there with later stage vehicles. Does that answer Great. your questions? Yeah, no, spot on. And I know we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the, the later stage funds here in a second, but um, uh, all of it just music to my ears in terms of where you're focused and and how big an impact it can have on this whole conversation of sustainability and, and clean tech. It's inherent in a lot of the sectors that you and I both focus on. So um, that said, I want to maybe do a double click into that sector focus you have. And so I've written about it and I know Blackhorn Ventures, anyone go check out their website very sector focused as well when it comes to competing in today's VC market as fast as pace has ever been pitch book report. Uh, I could point that out pretty quickly. So Trevor, why is sector focused differentiation important to you guys? What, what are the benefits you think of having that clarity of focus? And do you think it's occurring at a faster pace than ever for some different reason? Yeah, I mean, uh, 
it's interesting. I think you have to talk about the pace as a function of stage to some extent. We'll talk about that. But I mean, I think I think there's a, a number of really good reasons to have that that sector focus, right? One is just a prepared mind to underwrite deals, right? I think that as you move later stage, um, you know, you could argue pretty readily, I think, that domain expertise is less important, right? There's a lot more in terms of financial metrics and things like that that you can use to underwrite the investment opportunity. Good and great. generalist firms can do that very successfully. At the earliest stages, um, I mean, we really do like to come in, even in the context of our later stage funds, we like to have come in Genesis, seed stage, really like Series A is our last sort of, and there's a bit of semantics there, but Series A is really our last best entry point. We want to be in early. And what we want to, one of the ways we want to differentiate ourselves is we want to be one of the partners at seed that has the ability to play through to exit, right? We'll write the $20 million check in your Series B to lead it. Um, mm -hmm. But we really want to have been in there early. Um, so, yeah, I th and then now when you talk about, so if you say, okay, we want to be in early, then I think domain expertise is critically important, right? It's a team and it's an idea, and you need to be able to pretty rapidly, especially given, I think, the numbers of portfolio companies that are appropriate for that stage, back to that power law distribution dynamic, and then the number of companies you need to look at, you need to pretty readily be able to uh, assess these opportunities, right? Um, and I do think there is a point there. We do not think that we are smarter than the entrepreneurs we're uh, working with by any stretch, right? But really what we want to see happen is we have a prepared mind. We have operating experience, et cetera, in these sectors. We're looking for the entrepreneurs to come in and just totally blow our preconceived notions out of the water. But we've got enough of a prepared mind to understand that what they're saying doesn't defy the laws of physics, right? It makes sense, but it is not something we would have necessarily thought of. Uh, that's kind of our favorite favorite situation. Absolutely, and I'm sure the portfolio itself starts to only have network effects of that prepared mind, knowing customer bases, knowing the industry itself, so that you know, in a world where term sheets are flying around faster than ever, that prepared mind, to me, couldn't agree more. Definitely is uh, one way you have to differentiate yourself in a lot of ways. And so, maybe the follow-on question. It, these are a couple articles that uh, I would say went viral pretty quickly in 2021 uh, on this topic of differentiation. So Founders Fund, I believe it was Everett Randall wrote the Playing Different Games, uh, really honing in on the Tiger storyline. And then Slow Ventures, Sam Lesson wrote The End of VC As We Know It, both really grandiose titles. Yeah. Where do, where do you think the asset class is headed? Is it really as binary an evolution as these authors are making out to be or somewhere in between? You know, I think that they were both fantastic articles. I don't think it's as binary as maybe they they highlighted or suggested. But before we move on, I do want to, I think you just raised a really important point, right? Which is the customer interactions, right? Especially at the early stages. Like one of the best things that we, t we talk a lot and think a lot and really do endeavor to provide value beyond financial capital for our portfolio companies. One of the best ways you can do that is through customer connections. Right. And you really need to have that sector focus to have the depth of connectivity in the customer base and the talent pool. It's customers and talent. And you have to have that sector focus to really be able to bring that and provide value beyond financial capital. So I think that's a really important point that you just highlighted. Yeah, um, or even even Trevor, I mean, like how they buy, when they buy, how much sure. they will buy. Right. Those are like 
pricing go-to-market nuanced questions that, again, unless like yourself, you're buried in that sector or that industry vertical, it, it's not as ubiquitous. I always use the term like as SQL databases, right? So, you know, sophisticated software buyers, viral loops that can go with it. There's opportunity, but challenges in more of the legacy industry. So anyway, just piling on to your point, know the customers. That, that's the end of the game for any of these businesses, right? Yep. Well said. Uh, yeah, so back to kind of, uh, you know, the barbelling of venture, how is venture evolving? Um, you know, I think that, and I think Andreessen, one of the articles, uh, I think the one in the information highlighted this, Sam Lesson, um, you know, Andreessen talked about this years ago, right? The barbelling of venture capital and how the later stage firms are going to get absolutely huge and to really compete you need to be a, a, a sector-specific firm at the earlier stages, and the middle gets kind of washed out, right? Um, I think there's there's a lot of truth in that. I, you know, I do think what we have found is if you're in early and you know seed Series A, and you do provide a lot of value value beyond financial capital, then and you've got those fantastic relationships with the founders, with the entrepreneurs you're going to be able to play through, right? Like we get allocation in the later stage rounds that we want allocation in. Um, I don't think there's an, an example of us not um, in our portfolio. And so I think that's where you get some activity sort of in the middle, if you will, of that barbell. Like we play through and I think that's working really well, both in terms of we're able to better support the entrepreneurs, um, you know, I think that capacity is important. Companies inevitably go a little sideways from time to time, and we're able to step in and, and provide capital there in the middle of the barbell to some extent, and we're also able to capture value. So I think that there is a real opportunity for good, focused, early-stage firms to play through the middle of that barbell a little bit. You know, later stage, I mean, you definitely reach a point where, and we see that, you know, I was at a, a board dinner a couple of weeks ago and we were all kind of, there were three VCs there and we were all talking about how many deals tigers led in our companies the last two months. Right. Um, or co two or whoever, right. There's a number of players like that. They're playing a, a great game and a very different game than we play. And so there often becomes a point where it doesn't make sense with our more early stage orientation for us to keep playing. But I don't think it's quite as extreme a barbell, as, as maybe some articles would suggest. Sure, and I'm, I mean, it speaks to Blackhorn and to your point of adding value. Um, a lot of people are getting squished out of their pro rata rights as the companies mature, but that's pretty impressive, Trevor, to hear you guys have been able to, to take the checks and, and continue to support those companies at the end of the day. Um, I, I think, uh, again, it speaks to the specialization and value you guys are driving back to them. So, Well, hopefully um, I didn't jinx ourselves there. Or something. <laughs> You're going to hold it forever in podcast <laughs> lore here. So sorry if we did. Um, but, but I want to take us back now to what I, I, I was really excited amongst a lot of things to chat with you about today. It goes back to the fund um, differentiation and the stages that you guys are now playing at. Um, I think Blackhorn's one of the very first, if we use the term sector-focused funds, to in, expand its investment stage capabilities all the way from seed stage into those larger $20 million growth checks you mentioned. And I believe it's a new opportunity fund. So We've seen this multi-stage and fund approach take off over the last couple of years alone, especially with the more well-known generalist funds, if, again, I'll use words loosely. So why did Blackhorn decide to expand upstream into more of that growth stage? Could you tell us more about 
what what the different funds you have are just to set a foundation and then the pros and cons of running those different stage funds? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mentioned the seed fund earlier, right? And the seed fund was really focused on come in Genesis, pre-seed, true seed stage, $250,000 to $500,000 initial check in the most promising third write a second similarly sized check and a, a bridge to a series a right and that vehicle's out it doesn't do kind of pro rata down the capital stack um and then we've got our industrial impact fund which comes in decisively at sort of series a um we lead a lot of those rounds and then has the reserves within that vehicle to play all the way through right we can do the pro rata and our winners out of that vehicle and then we have blackboard select which is our kind of opportunity co-invest fund where we come in alongside the industrial impact fund, typically kind of series B, and we write the 10, 15, $20 million checks and then have reserves to play through on those positions out of that vehicle. Um, Trevor, real you know, quick I, on that one, is it just yep. growth investing out of the prior fund or do you have an opportunistic mandate where you can invest in the growth stage companies even if you hadn't been a part of the earlier ride? Sorry to just zoom in real quick. No, it's a great question. So um, we have a little bit of flexibility there, right? So there's four mm -hmm. companies currently in that portfolio. Um, Locomation has been one of our portfolio companies from Seed. So it's in all of our vehicles. Vecna and Humatics, we came in with our industrial impact fund. They're not in the Seed fund and they're in the select fund. And then um, X-Wing, we came in, you know, we've, we have like a, I think a pretty prepared bind around the aviation facet of transportation logistics. Um, we're really excited about that company, that team, that approach. And so we came in um, and led their Series B, and it's only in the opportunity for co-invest fund. Um, it, it was a little bit too far along for the industrial impact fund to make an entry point. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And um, I think a bit of the genesis in terms of how we got into the multi-stage game as well you know i think it stems from the fact that when we started with the seed fund we had a really interesting largely strategic lp base in the seed fund and part of our value prop for them was we had already seeded 70 companies prior right using personal capital and there were a number of incredible winners in there right um you know, Ray and Phil had seeded Plan Grid to use a construction tech example, right? There were a number of companies like that in there. And, you know, the Sequoias of the world had come on and were leading later stage rounds. And so our LP base, even if they've got a really big name, they're not going to be able to get access to those, those companies necessarily at those later stages. And because we had been in early, because we had provided value beyond financial capital, we were able to get allocation. And so we did a series of kind of 10 SPVs, I think it was 10 SPVs, maybe 11, to lead and participate in series A's, B's, C's, kind of in the best of our 70 and get our LPs access to those. So I think that's part of the reason that we sort of started down this path of, of being able to participate and being a good partner all the way through. And we frankly, we saw the value that that provided for us, our LPs, and, and importantly, the entrepreneurs, right? I talked earlier about how, you know, there have been a number of times, some of our highest performing investments are when sort of series A or B, when they've gone a little sideways, and this gets back to the domain expertise piece, and I think, you know, Ray Levitt on our team has been incredible at this. It's like deep, deep domain expertise, and so 
I think it leads to a higher degree of conviction. And so when things do go sideways a little bit, we can come in and, and, and have the conviction to write those checks. And um, that's really been to our benefit and the entrepreneur's benefit. And so we kind of saw the value, I think, of that strategy through SPVs and then really replace the SPV activity with those later stage vehicles. Because um, one of the issues, I mean, SPVs are great. You get deal by deal economics. It, you, it's much easier to kind of underwrite them, not a blind pool, et cetera, um, and from an LP perspective. But, you know, that, that was, uh, it can be pretty brutal. I don't know if you've done that, raising 11 SPVs. Um, oh, the to track administration headload. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yep. So I, I don't know that I would recommend that as like a long-term <laughs> strategy. Um, but so, I mean, that's one of the reasons to move to the fund. I think the biggest, you know, for the most part, in terms of team, I think we have a larger team than you would probably typically see for kind of this stage, this AUM. Um, but that, I think that's really because um, of the sort of in values that we have, right? The 70 plus the 50 plus the SPVs plus the, I think we're at 23 companies in the industrial impact fund and four in select fund, right? So just that's a lot of investing activity um, and a lot of companies. And so just managing that thoughtfully requires larger teams. So I think larger team is, is one. Um, there were some, you know, we have their separate vehicles as a result of sort of just building a firm sort of stepwise and the realities of fundraising. You know, I think next go around, we probably consolidate that into two vehicles. Um, I think there are some really good reasons to have it as two, um, but three is kind of a lot, right? There's a lot of conversations. There were a lot of conversations with LPs around potential or perceived conflicts of interest at those interfaces between the vehicles and things like that, which we were definitely able to mitigate, but it just adds to, adds to the conversation or friction. Sure. Yeah, but otherwise it's been fantastic. Yeah. I mean, cross-fund investing, I mean, you just put the right guardrails in place, but uh, you know, again, back to the comment about adding value, I, I really appreciate you sharing how a sector focused fund, because you have a prepared mind, it can add value along the life cycle of the company, those founders want you there and, and, and are incentivized to make sure you're into the next round as well. I think it's, again, speaks to the platform you guys have built. Um, maybe if I was to then, because I'm curious, once it goes beyond the select fund, I, I wanted this world of SPACs that's really had an impact on our shared interest areas and sectors. Um, it's really filled in what I believe is a pretty drastic growth equity funding gap for most of these companies that aren't always pure traditional enterprise SaaS. Do you, do you think there's a growth equity gap in these kind of industrial legacy industry sectors that you think SPACs are here to stay? Or do you think there's going to be capital to come in and, and take that next uh, rung of the ladder after the select funds tapped out? Yeah, it's interesting. I think it probably varies a lot sort of subsector by subsector, right? Like there are, there are facets of, you know, construction tech, for example, right? A sector that I think we're both super interested and active in. A lot of those companies today, they look a lot like just traditional enterprise SaaS, right? And so I think it's very easy for a, when they're performing very well, it's very easy for a large cohort of generalist venture firms that currently have a lot of money sitting in their kind of growthier funds to under, like wrap their heads around, underwrite those deals and do them, right? Kind of series B, C and beyond. 
right? And so I, I don't see a real dearth of capital for those types of companies. But I think your point is really good. When you think a bit more expansively, like in construction, if you start to move into prefab or modular, even like the software facets of those, or with transportation and logistics, as you move away from, again, those kind of more enterprise software type plays to robotics and AI um, outside of sort of level five autonomous for passenger vehicles, there can be a, a, a bit of a funding gap there, right? Um, those are harder to understand. They've got different growth trajectories, um, maybe more capital intensive in some situations than um, what folks are looking for, et cetera. And I do think that there is a, a bit of a shortage of capital there. And I think SPACs can absolutely play an interesting role um, in, in, in filling those needs and, and giving retail investors, public markets exposure to all the incredible innovation and value that's being created in private markets. Yep. No question. I mean, we, uh, to your point about uh, warehouse automation, robotics, you know, Berkshire Gray, we need more markers like that and others to, uh, to help bring more of that capital into that subsect as you defined it. I thought that was uh, spot on about the enterprise software versus the more capital intensive businesses. So, um, Travis moving or Trevor moving us forward here. Our audience always loves to talk tech trends uh, within this digital industrial ecosystem. So a section I sometimes call what's hot, what's hype. Let's discuss areas in our ecosystem that are, uh, I'm picking up a word you used on a, a previous podcast, appropriately timed for the market. And where do you think there's a lot of opportunity, but maybe a longer path to commercial readiness if you broke it apart? Yeah. Um, a great question. I, I'm inclined to gravitate toward kind of examples in transportation and logistics. Would you rather talk about construction or? or no, transportation logistics. Love it. Do let's it. go. All right. Yeah. Let's do it. You know, I think, and I think this has become a fairly mainstream perspective at this point, but the level five autonomous in a passenger vehicle context, I think is a long way off. Right. And, and so what we've been focused on probably for four four or five years now is more, how do we take advantage of all the billions of dollars that have been, been invested in that space, right? And the incredible improvements that have been made in LIDAR technology and like the cost reductions associated with that, et cetera, and apply it in more constrained contexts, right? So locomation would be an example of like tractor trailer platooning, right? How do we gather that? How do we have a viable business model around level three autonomous that allows us to collect the data to get to level four, level five autonomous over time when it, when it works? Um, I think Vecna, right, is really interesting. It's, um, you know, autonomous forklifts and tuggers with a really incredible orchestration engine kind of layered on top of that that orchestrates the flow of manned vehicles, unmanned vehicles, et cetera, through you know, a much more constrained environment like a, a distribution or fulfillment center. I think what Humatics is doing with ultra-wideband radar around improving throughput on existing subway infrastructure, both in New York and around the world, and then moving up into buses and things like that for a broader kind of smart cities play is, is pretty incredible, right? Um, and then, you know, I mentioned X-Wing in the aviation space. We're very bullish on, I think, autonomy for known certified airframes. And this will be an example, you know, both of your questions, right? I think the 
approach that X-Wing is taking, taking a Cessna caravan, again, a known certified platform that is the backbone of the kind of short haul cargo feeder network, um, especially domestically, but also in a lot of global applications, um, and a dramatically underutilized asset, making that semi-autonomous or autonomous and improving that asset utilization, efficiency and resiliency in the supply chain, I think is incredibly interesting. The odds that a kid, you don't have to differentiate between a kid and a garbage bag blowing across the road in an aviation context, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's a much more constrained problem. Um, so I think that's very interesting. The flip side of that, I think that, you know, some of these were not super bullish. We have not been super bullish on we are building a new airframe with a new battery electric powertrain to haul people over dense urban environments in a, you know in a fully autonomous fashion right like that's a lot of different um, potential failure points right and and really challenging uh, hurdles both from a regulatory perspective and from a technical perspective um, and so I think those are examples of like, will they come? Yes. Do I think it's maybe more like a 10 to 15 year horizon for those types of plays? Yeah. Um, so maybe that's an example of, of both sides of that. Yeah. No, I think spot on some great trends on both ends. And w way back in the Boeing engineering days on my side, it's really hard to build a new airframe with a new battery uh, and everything regulatory included. So I'm with you. It needs to happen. I think it's going to it's going to happen. But I think a lot of times investing in some of these industries too early can be the same as wrong. So you got to be really, really thoughtful about market timing, right? So, um, well, Trevor, we always love to bring it back to the founders at the end of the podcast here and, and really help them out with, um, you know, some words of wisdom of what gets you excited about these early stage innovators approaching, approaching Blackhorn. So maybe split it apart. Any keys to success at the earliest stages for them when they're approaching you or any common challenges uh, to avoid as they enter the discussion? Yeah, and I think, you know, this may be less about a specific conversation with us and more just about pursuing an entrepreneurial endeavor, right? And and specifically pursuing an entrepreneurial endeavor that's going to lend itself to venture backing, whether it's from Blackhorn or, or Iron Spring or somebody else, right? I think that, you know, Jack, one of my partners who he's one of the ones that's been teaching entrepreneurship forever, he's a serial operator and, and really an educator at heart. He talks about you've got this kind of wheel of entrepreneurial success that we actually use a lot internally as like a bit of a very coarse high level filter, right? It's our, you know, is the company solving a significant pain point in an enduring industry in a defensible way at the right time with the right team and a scalable business model. And I think one of the things is just, you know, when you're starting thinking about starting something new, I'd really encourage entrepreneurs or potential entrepreneurs um, to just reflect on all of those categories and, and are you really, you know, just knocking out of the park on those, 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 yeah, those, those fronts. Um, and, and one to kind of double click in on, I, I really do believe, and it's a bit trite, but like a prerequisite for pursuing an entrepreneurial endeavor, I think, especially probably in these more industrial sectors is an order of magnitude improvement and a key to the customer performance metric and or half the cost, right? There are large incumbent players that are incredible, again, especially in these industrial sectors, I think, that are incredible at incremental innovation, right? They are optimized for it. They are funded for it. They are very, very adept at incremental innovation. And so 
in order to beat them at the game, you really need that kind of step function improvement. So I think that's probably one thing that I think is just something for entrepreneurs to really focus on for the sake of their entrepreneurial endeavor. And then also, you know, when you come and pitch us or, or most other venture capital firms, um, they're going to be looking for that, right? And so just really keep those things in mind. I think, you know, especially more technical founders, uh, we do have, you know, I always say oh, it's incredible. We're washing, you know, MIT, Stanford, PhDs in every STEM field you can imagine. They're incredible, but you can over-focus on the technology, right? And the engineering, which is, I think, a bit of a, a problem and a, and a turnoff, right? So really focus on the the pain point that you are uniquely positioned to solve and really make it more about the customer pain point that you're addressing than this innovation. Um, I think that's a, a really important one. And then I think, you know, and this probably extends, it depends a little bit on what stage you're talking about, but I do see often a lack of emphasis on go-to-market, you know, and just really getting go-to-market dialed and communicating that pretty clearly, I think is, is critically important. Yeah, obviously. I agree. And I, I think maybe that's where you and I can really help these companies too, right? With the smart technical founders that are looking for the domain expertise and some of the go-to-market insights we talked about earlier. So it takes two to tango, but uh, agree, you, you need to know the pain you're solving pretty clearly uh, from the beginning. So, okay, well, we, we always like yeah, to wrap think, up here. I think that's- oh, Go ahead, Trevor. Well, I was just going to say, I think that's an important point, Ty, and I do think that is one of the areas where good VCs and especially, you know, sector-focused VCs can provide a lot of value, right? Because I, you know, there is one of the rare areas where we can provide a lot of value, right? It's just the information asymmetry that arises from looking at thousands and thousands of companies and working with hundreds and hundreds of them versus, you know, a really prolific entrepreneur might start three or four companies in their lifetime, right? And so that delta is I think one of the areas where you and others can provide a lot of value, right? That information asymmetry. Completely agree. Well, we'd like to wrap up with quick hitters here, a little bit of a rapid fire Q&A. So if you're ready, we'll, we'll jump in. Let's do it. All right. Number one thing you're looking for when evaluating one of these digital industrial companies. Oh man, I already gave it away. The order of magnitude improvement. Like it. Consistency of thought there for sure. What, <laughs> what is one resource, book, podcast, blog, whatever it is you'd recommend our audience to follow in this ecosystem? Well, I mean, obviously heavy hitters, right? There we I go. Mean, that, that's the given. <laughs> one book I'm enjoying right now is um, Brad Feld and Dave Jilk wrote uh, The Entrepreneur's Nietzsche. Uh, yep. And that one's pretty fun. Uh, one person who should be on the podcast. You know, have you had Zach Scheel from Rumbix on? I have not, no. Rumbix is definitely a, a mover in the construction tech ecosystem for sure. Yeah, and I think you two would have a really fun conversation, uh, more construction tech oriented. I think that'd be a good one. Right on. Well, finally, uh, best best way for folks to reach out to you, Trevor? Yeah, just by email would be great. Uh, Trevor at blackhornvc.com. Right on. Well, super fun chat. Um, again, big admirer here of what you what you guys are doing for the ecosystem here. Uh, sector focused capital, I do think, can make a big, big impact on these founders that are that are going to make a big difference in the world. So appreciate you jumping on and telling the story, and we'll have to have you uh, back on not too distant future. All right. Thanks, Ty. I really appreciate it. I look forward to continuing to co-invest with you.